Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this presentation, hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, England, a Center for Catholic Theology and the Public Academy. For more information, please visit our website at centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following is from a conference entitled 450 Years Pioneering Catholic Education, Past, Present, Future. It was the 450th anniversary conference for the founding of the English College at Dowie, organized by the Center for Catholic Studies of Durham University, Ushaw College, and St. Cuthbert's Society of Ushaw. The conference was held at Ushaw College in Durham from the 30th of April to the 1st of May, 2018. The following was given as part of a session on the Catholic Revival by Dr. Jonathan Bush of Durham University and is entitled Nicholas Wiseman and Ushaw. Okay. Um, I have been reliably informed that this session is not going to go on until 3 o'clock. Um, the original plan was to have uh, uh, one of my former, well, in fact, PhD supervisors, uh, Dr. Sheridan Gilly, to, uh, to give a sec second half of this paper. Um, but Sheridan, unfortunately, can't, can't be with us today, so I'm doing the whole, the whole thing. Um, so I apologize in advance if I get some of my facts wrong. Um, so, on the 13th of July, 1852, um, John Henry Newman preached one of the most famous sermons in English Catholic history. The sermon was given during the First Synod of the New Province of Westminster, held at Oscott College near Birmingham. The sermon, known as The Second Spring, and published in this volume entitled Sermons Preached on Various Occasions, set out to portray England before the Reformation and to show how the Catholic landscape had changed since the passing of the Roman Catholic Relief Acts of 1778, 1791 and 1829. I'm rather embarrassed to say that that uh, image there isn't a picture from, from uh, Usher College Library. We don't appear to have a first edition of this particular sermon. Um, so it's from a library in Richmond somewhere, I think. Um, Yes, yeah, Jesuit Library of Richmond, um, probably doesn't exist anymore. Um, but uh, so the, the, the following passage, which I'm going to quote from it, uh, has been said. Uh, it was influenced by the style of Charles Dickens. Certainly that's what uh, Dr. Sheridan uh, Gilly told me at the time when I was writing my, my thesis. And I think it's, it's wonderfully evocative of the status of Catholics um, during the recusant period. Uh, with Newman contrasting the state of the Catholics then with the flourishing position of the Catholic Church in the mid-19th century. So he says, excuse me, it's quite a long, a long quote, but I think it's worth quoting in full. Uh, my fathers, fathers and brothers, um, you, you have seen it on one side and some of us on another, but one and all of us can bear witness to the fact of the utter contempt into which Catholicism had fallen by the time that we were born. No longer the Catholic Church in the country, nay, no longer, I, I may say, the Catholic community. But a few adherents of the old religion, moving silently and sorrowfully about as memorials of what had been the Roman Catholics. Not a sect, not even an interest, as men conceived of it. Not a body, however small, representative of the great communion abroad. But a mere handful of individuals who might be counted like the pebbles and detritus of the great deluge, and who, forsooth, merely happened to retain a creed which, in its day indeed, was the profession of a church. 
Such were Catholics in England, found in corners and alleys and cellars and the housetops or in the recesses of the country, cut off from the populous world around them, and dimly seen as if through a mist or in twilight as ghosts flitting to and fro by the high Protestants, the lords of the earth. So I think that's a really wonderful uh, evocative um, sermon. Um, so the fact that the, the Catholic Church was clearly flourishing by the mid-19th century, I don't think there can be any doubt about that. Um, sheer statistics alone tell their own story. The total Catholic population in 1851 was 650,000. That's 3.46% of the total population. Um, that's if you contrast that with the estimate of 60,000 in 1781, you can see that, that, that rise, quite, quite a significant rise there. The lowest increase in the period, 1840 to 1850, would appear to have been about 37.6%. In the north, Thomas Smith, vicar apostolic of the northern district, put the total number of Catholics in his territory at 180,000 in 1830. Um, these were served by 172 missions, and if we break that down, you've got Lancashire at the top with 82, Yorkshire 46, Northumberland 12, Durham 12, Cheshire 7, Cumberland 4, and the Alamann 1. So these statistics are taken from um, Father David Milburn's landmark book, History of Usher College. Um, and Father Milburn has also noted that serving these centres were 172 priests, of whom 115 had been educated at Episcopal colleges, by which the bishop presumably meant Crucol, Valladolid, Lisbon, Rome, and also the last surviving alumni of, of, of Dawe. Milburn further notes that of this 115 figure, 110 were the products of either Dawe, Crucol, or Osho. And that's just such an amazing statistic. And the fact that the vast majority of, of missioners at this time were, were, um, were trained in, these, in, the, in, in Dao, either Dawe, Kukul, or Russia. In 1839, Bishop John Briggs submitted a further account to Rome, which specified the number of Catholics in the, in the individual counties oh. under his jurisdiction, which included 160,000 in Lancashire and Cheshire and 13,000 in, in Yorkshire. So by this point, the missions had increased to 196, um, with Lancashire 95 at the top, uh, all the way down to the Isle of Man with two. But you can see there's a definite increase even within, within nine years. Um, by 1850, the churches and chapels had risen to a total of 242. 130 of them in Lancashire, 61 in Yorkshire, and 51 in the new Northern District. The missioners, including religious, number 284. In 1863, two years before Cardinal Nicholas Wiseman's death, of whom more later, the churches and chapels totaled 380, showing an increase of 138 since 1850. That's nearly a third more. While the missioners numbered 513, almost double the figure for 1850. So undoubtedly, the Roman Catholic Relief Act of 1829, which is more commonly known, although not necessarily accurately, as the Catholic Emancipation Act of 1829, um, which gave Catholics full rights as citizens, um, and the removal of their legal disabilities by the gradual abolition of the penal laws, uh, promoted the growth of the Catholic community. Between 1830 and 1840, 19 new missions were, op were opened in the North, among them Birkenhead, Staley Bridge, Penrith, 
Hartlepool, Burnley, Southport, Doncaster, Keithley, Malton, all of them looked after by priests educated at Usher. In the new circumstances of English Catholicism, much was to be expected of the movement of conversion, which occurred during these years in university circles. Cambridge produced, of course, uh, Cansom Digby and Ambrose uh, Phillips de Lisle, and the second spring in Leicestershire, Oxford, of course, gave Newman and his associates. This is actually something that we discovered um, literally a few months ago in Usher College Library, and uh, it appears to be nowhere else, so it's a really, really interesting uh, print. Um, so in terms of uh, the, uh, the, the converts, the tide of con conversion swept only as far as the Midlands, um, where its currents were, were strongest. In 1840, the young Dr. Wiseman was installed as president of, of Oscott College, deliberately to direct the stream of converts. But the tide never reached the north, partly because there was no one as enthusiastic as Wiseman, but also because of the huge increase in Irish immigrants who transformed the character of the Catholic Church in the industrial towns and cities. By checking the Catholic directory against the college diary in the late 1840s, a period which saw a huge influx of Irish immigrants, uh, David Milburn has noted that about half the priests on the mission in the north were from Usher. Though these priests shared the heroism of others in ministering to the Irish flock. In 1847, when fever broke out amongst the Irish in Liverpool, Five of the ten priests who died in the ep epidemic were from Usher. At Leeds, five priests died within eight weeks, all connected with Northern Seminary. Amongst them, Richard Wilson, who with Francis Wilkinson, had been sent from Usher to the University of London to receive the first Bachelor of Arts degrees. Thomas Billington, Vicar or General of York, Joseph uh, Dugdale at Stockton, James Standen at Burtley, and William Riddle, Vicar Apostolic of the Northern District, all fell victim. So whatever, re whatever the reason for the increase in their numbers, um, it had become quite clear that Catholics, to return to Newman's Second Spring Sermon, were no longer to be found in corners and alleys and cellars and the housetops or in the recesses of the country, cut off from the population world, uh, populous world around them. The days of small meeting houses hidden away from the public gaze were long gone. In their place were clear signs of the growth of, in self-confidence of, of a resurgent um, Catholicism. Large and ornate Gothic churches, influenced by the ambitious architectural designs of A.W. Pugin, that were situated as close to public life as possible. Churches were given dedications, such as St. Patrick's in the east end of Sunderland, and in some places, such as St. Michael's in Lord, literally just a stone's throw from here, the name of the local Anglican parish was adopted if it predated the Reformation. The worship within these churches highlights the growing trend towards ultramontanism, with continental forms of Italian piety, such as devotions to the Blessed Sacrament and the Blessed Virgin Mary. So to a certain extent, the resurgence of Catholicism during the mid-19th century can be viewed through the eyes of those hostile to its religion. For many Protestants of all denominations, the growth in the Catholic Church was symptomatic of the true nature of popery. The notorious Cheltenham anti-Catholic Reverend Francis Close complained that it was the passing of the Relief Acts uh, which were to blame for this, 
He says, we give them civil or religious liberty, risque ad nauseum, and yet they go on bit by bit. Beautiful cathedrals spring up, and the pomps and ceremonies of popery with its priests and bishops prevail, until at length comes a, a, a scarlet cardinal to take possession of the land. This is Roman ingratitude. So in other words, how dare they exercise their rights that we have given them to build churches by actually doing so. However, having said that, uh, these liturgical innovations and the neo-Gothic architectural fashion so hated by uh, ultra-Protestants, and it must be said, to a certain extent, by a large proportion of Catholics also, made a little headway in the north. For example, with the exception of St. Cuthbert's Chapel at Ushaw, Pigeon contributed only St. Mary's in Stockton and St. Mary's in Newcastle in the northern counties. From this perspective, the innovations of uh, Monsignor Charles Nisham, uh, who was Usher College's fifth president in the mid-19th century, appears, appears as something of an anomaly when contrasted to the rest of the North. But there can be no doubt that he was the major inspiration behind the success of the college um, during this period. So Nisham's architectural innovations, I'm sure you're very familiar with them by now, um, included the building of the library, um, infirmary, museum, exhibition hall, lavatories, kitchens, farm buildings, and, and of course, the junior seminary. Perhaps best known, although sadly no longer evident, was the Pugin Design Chapel. Um, by the beginning of Nisham's presidency, the original chapel was proving to be too small to accommodate the growing student population. Nisham therefore commissioned the famous Catholic architect, Augustus Welby Pugin, to design a new chapel in keeping with his burgeoning vision for the college. This was finally completed in 1847. So Nishan may have been Usher's most prominent uh, exponent of the second spring of English Catholicism, but it was Nicholas Wiseman who was the real driving force behind the movement. Indeed, the ideology that permitted the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church to capitalize on the huge increase in numbers was the romantic, ultramontane, and triumphalism of, the, of, the, uh, of this uh, exemplified by, by Wiseman. So Nicholas Wiseman is, uh, is well, Cardinal and Archbishop Westminster is probably well known to many of you here, at least I hope he should be. Um, but I think it might be useful to have some biographical information at this stage. Um, he was born on the 2nd of August, 1802 in Seville, um, following the death of his father, uh, James, his mother moved with Nicholas and his brother James to Ireland, where they were placed in a boarding school near Waterford. In March 1810, they were enrolled in St. Cuthbert's College, Ushaw. In the autumn of 1818, Wiseman was part of a contingent of 10 English students sent to the English College in Rome. Um, the first, in actual fact, the first English students to enroll since since ransacking by the French Revolutionary Armory, Armies in 1798. Wiseman was ordained there in 1825 and appointed to the position of rector only three years later. In the same year, he published his, his, first, major, uh, his first major work, um, Hore Syriacae, I think that's where it is, um, which established his reputation as a scholar. Um, Pope Lee the Twelfth was influential in, in Wiseman being awarded a professor, professorship in the Roman, later the Pontifical Gregorian University. He was elected to the Royal Asiatic Society, and in 1831 
was made an honorary member of the Royal Society of Literature. During the 1830s, Wiseman spent a great deal of time in England and joined Daniel O'Connell and Michael Joseph Quinn in establishing a Catholic quarterly magazine, The Dublin Review. In 1840, he was elevated to the Episcopate as, as, uh, as Bishop of Melipotamus and appointed a coadjutor to Bishop Walsh, Bishop Walsh now Vicar Apostolic of the New Central District and President of, the, of Oscar College near Birmingham. Uh, it was during this time that he attracted the attention of John Henry Newman and others associated with the Oxford movement. Five years later, it was to be Wiseman who confirmed Newman in Oscott Chapel. In 1847, Wiseman was, was also influential in persuading Pope Pius IX to restore the hierarchy in England and Wales. This was established three years later. Consequently, Wiseman, who was then Vicar Apostolic of the London District, was elevated to the status of Archbishop of Westminster. Wiseman's official announcement of this decision was ill-conceived, to say the least. Um, he issued a, issued a pastoral letter to the Catholics of the newly created Archdiocese of Southwark, in which he spoke of Catholic England being restored to its orbit in the ecclesiastical firmament from which its light had long since vanished. These opinions ensured the revival of anti-Catholicism as a legitimate method of popular expression, in every locality throughout the country during the latter months of 1850 and well into the following year. Town and county meetings were initiated. Anglican and dissenting ministers preached from their pulpits. Um, popular firebrands capitalised on the anti-Catholic agitation by charging for lectures on the evils of the papacy and effigies of the Pope. And Cardinal uh, effigies of the Pope and Cardinal Wiseman were burned in the streets on November the 5th. Just to take one local-ish example, um, a stormy meeting in Newcastle, for example, to protest against the papal measure and Wiseman's belligerence was constantly disturbed by Irish Catholics, who, according to, to the local newspaper, the Shields Gazette, um, set up the most unearthly howls ever heard in Newcastle or any other civilised town in the kingdom, producing a compound resembling wind that had got into an old farm chimney and could not get out again, and Wombwells wild beasts at feeding time. Wombwells was actually a zoo at this point, so that just gives an idea of where they were coming from. Um, the meeting was concluded with three cheers for the Queen and three groans for the Pope. <laughs> Wiseman did manage to backtrack a little and dampen the anti-Catholic mood by issuing a, a, an appeal to the reason and good feeling of the English people, and the affair did blow over fairly quickly, with little lasting negative effects to the Catholic Church. Having said that, Wiseman was a natural master of psychological warfare, expertly navigating the partisan nature of Roman Catholic party politics. He cultivated contacts with wavering Anglicans and encouraged the importation of the most extravagant examples of Italian, of Italian devotion. His love of the outward display of his rank made him the very stereotype of the proud pope, uh, popish prelate. Wiseman and the other ultramontane clergy who wanted to revive the English Roman Catholic Church in a Roman image, faced opposition from conservative old Catholic aristocrats who were used to the days when clergy, even the bishops, were almost family retainers. Noblemen such as the 13th Duke of Norfolk, who opposed societies limited to Roman Catholics, or Lord Beaumont, who came to oppose publicly the new hierarchy in 1850, 
did not like the direction in which the church was moving. There was also a conservative Anglo-Gallican tradition in, Anglo in English Roman Catholicism that had evolved in its own devotional style and that had prized its independent English way of doing things. So let's just backtrack a little and focus on what influenced the young Nicholas Wiseman uh, by concentrating on his life as a schoolboy at Oshaw College. When he came to Oshaw as an eight-year-old with his brother James in March 1810, Charles Newsham became his pedagogue. This was essentially a tutor and friend who helped him in his lessons, advised him in difficulties, and did what he could to make his college life both happy and successful. Many years afterwards, when Wiseman was a cardinal, he spoke gratefully of the debt which he owed to his old pedagogue, a debt which became greater when Newsham somewhat later taught him for two years in syntax and in rhetoric. The number of students at Usher at this time was about 90, and presided over by Thomas Eyre, a former professor at Dowie. Wiseman appears to be regarded by those who came across him casually as, in his own words, stupid and dull by my companions when out of class, and I made hardly any friends. I never got any notice or favour from, from my superiors. But I knew that I was reading a great deal more than others without saying a word about it, both in study time and out of it. And I made myself happy enough. I'm sure I never said a witty or clever thing all the time I was at college. But I used to think a great deal. The great lesson I learned during the desolate years of college life is self-reliance, not vanity or presumption but the determination to work for myself. Wiseman also described himself in a little unpublished poem as a lone, unmurmuring boy who studied while others played, who could find no pastime as sweet as a book. As Cardinal Manning was later to write, the education of St Cuthbert's College, Durham, made him the solid, manly Englishman of whom English men have learned to be proud. In his last year at Usher, all his hard work seemed, seems to have paid off, and Wiseman's name appeared uh, regularly at the top of his class. So as well as Charles Newsham, Wiseman developed a great affection for the then Vice President, uh, John Lingard, who served um, briefly as Vice President and then Acting President of the College. This is just a, a photograph of um, the proof copy of Lingard's History of England, which is, which is in our library. Um, we also have the manuscript and, and the first edition as well. Um, Wiseman remembered that in the autumn, of, quote, in the autumn of 1818, Mr. Lingard was vice president of the college, which he entered at eight years of age. And I've retained upon my memory the vivid, vivid recollection of specific acts of thoughtful and delicate kindness, which showed a tender heart, mindful of his duties amidst the many harassing occupations just devolved on him. Indeed, Lingard remained a close correspondent with, with Wiseman for the rest of his life. Unfortunately, few details of Wiseman's school life are preserved in the records, but there are some well-known facts of his life during this period. For example, it was in August 1812, during a visit by the four English vicars apostolic and Bishop Morgan of Cork uh, to Ushaw, that Wiseman finally resolved to take holy orders, and the cottage in the neighbourhood where, according to a college tradition, the future cardinal, in the course of half an hour spent there to avoid a passing storm, made up his mind to become a priest. It's interesting to note, for those who know the local geography, that this cottage was situated near Neville's Cross, later becoming the, the pot and glass pub, 
And now, unfortunately, a local Sainsbury's. So I'm pretty sure it's not what Nicholas Wiseman would have wanted. But there we are. So Wiseman had a strong connection with his mother throughout his life. And for a time, she came to live in Durham in order to be near her two sons at Ushaw. It was while staying at his mother's house in Durham, when he was 10 or 12 years old, that an incident occurred which was to have a profound effect on his later life. The Wiseman's house was opposite an inn where a boisterous crowd had gathered to hear an election address, and young Nicholas, attracted by the commotion outside, appeared at a window to watch the exciting scene. The house, however, was known to be a Catholic one, and when the boy was seen looking on, the crowd began to shout anti-Catholic insults at him. Wiseman learned for the first time something of the latent hatred still felt by the majority of his fellow countrymen for the Bishop of Rome and all his detestable enormities. Another recorded incident in his usher life is worth noting. He and a schoolfellow, probably James Sharples, afterwards a bishop and coadjutor to Bishop George Brown of the Lancashire district, formed a society for the study of Roman uh, antiquities. They produced a plan of Rome for this purpose and investigated, amongst other things, the history of the English College at Rome. They wrote at the same time a story of the Roman life entitled Fabius, which was later to influence his novel Fabiola. And that's just a, a rather battered-looking copy of, of the manuscript that we have in Usher College Library of that, of that particular work. Wiseman retained a, a great affection for Usher throughout his life. In 1838, for example, the recently appointed president of the college, Charles Newsham, who we've heard already heard quite a lot about, prepared a new college prospectus, which outlined the system employed in training both lay and ecclesiastical students at Usher. A new syllabus of studies accompanied these external claims to learning. In regard to this, President Newsham carefully sought the advice of all those whom he thought to be experts in matters educational. As well as John Lingard, Robert Tate and George Errington, Wiseman supplied useful bibliographic advice and proposed a change in the names given to the various classes because he assumed that they might be confusing to strangers. To replace the Dowie terms of rudiments, grammar and syntax, he submitted the more general designation classes of humanity. The president agreed and this advice was adopted. Wiseman suggested that the scheme should not be published because it lacked maturity, contained in a letter to Newsham dated the 17th of April 1839, arrived too late. Um, because the, pla this, the plan for the education and uh, course of studies was already printing and appeared that July. This is a slightly later edition of that. Wiseman regularly returned to Ashore to preach to its chapel. For example, pre preaching a sermon at the opening of the new Pugin Chapel on the 11th of October 1847, as well as Newsham's Jubilee on the 22nd of June 1853. He was also instrumental in acquiring some notable treasures for the college, playing a key role in the acquisition of St Cuthbert's ring, for example. For over 200 years, this ring has been amongst the treasures of what was known um, as the English convent Paris a community of canonesses of St. Augustine. For several years, the cardinal made ineffectual efforts to induce the nuns to part with the relic. But in 1856, they finally agreed, receiving in return some relics of St. Augustine and St. Monica. In a letter to the convent, Wiseman put forward an impassioned case that a relic could be housed at Usher. 
Now the College of St. Cuthbert at Ushaw is without exception the noblest establishment in England. A splendid chapel has been built in honour of, of its patron, yet not a particle of his relics, not an object that belonged to him. All is in the hands of Protestants who show what belonged to him as mere curiosities. You possess in his ring the only relic of him in Catholic hands. Will you enrich his church and his children by the sacrifice of it, obtain forever their prayers, help to excite devotion to him, where it will help in forming a holy clergy? If you can bring yourselves generously to do this, God and St. Cuthbert will bless you and make up the loss. The Cardinal received the ring in person from the Reverend Mother, who presented it to him on her knees. But he waited until the Jubilee of 1858 before solemnly handing it over. It's worth noting that it was never claimed that the saint had worn it while alive. It adorned his finger after one of the medieval reopenings of his tomb. Cardinal Wiseman also played a key role in celebrations for the Usho College Jubilee to commemorate 50 years since the foundation of the college. These were planned on quite a magnificent scale, shall we say. Wiseman had written the play, um, The Hidden Gem, um, for the occasion, and he also composed sketches as well. Um, this is uh, something else that's in, our, in the library. And also the, the, college, um, the college Ode as well, and was himself prominent throughout the whole um, proceedings. Well, everyone was happy with Wiseman's involvement. A letter from the future president, Monsignor Robert Tate, for example, complained about the coverage of the Jubilee in the Dublin Review, which was particularly scathing of the employment of the Oxford converts in the planning stages. So Tate writes, The article in Dublin about the Usher Jubilee is penned in a very exaggerated style and reads like an advertisement for the Cardinal's play. <laughs> and all the Usher alumnus should have been asked to write on such a theme. The writer draws in his imagination, whereas an, whereas an old Usher man would have painted real scenes. Oakley, who was canon, an Oxford convert, who spoke at the Jubilee, I understand, wrote it. And many, especially in Lancashire, will laugh at it. Between ourselves, my feeling is that the real sons of Alan Mater have yet to keep the real Jubilee. Last time it was taken out of their hands by mongrel and bastard Sprout. <laughs> he, he was quite a cantankerous, so-and-so was Monsignor Robert Tate. Elsewhere, Tate mentions that Dr. Newsham had explained that the arrangements had been taken out of his hands to a great extent by the Cardinal, and that he was conscious of his, of his prominence given to, to strangers. So I just wanted to finish off by examining, examining Wiseman's staunch, if ultimately fruitless, defence of Usher College against the incessant attacks by the English bishops during the mid-19th century. Thankfully, Seamus is here, as you know, he's, he's not... The relationship between certain bishops, so it has to be said not all bishops, and Usher College, was a particularly fractious one throughout the 19th century. Lancashire, as part of the Northern District, had contributed substantially towards the building of the college in 1808, and was in constant source of supply in the provision of students for the seminary. However, the Liverpool bishops, notably George Brown and Alexander Gost, felt that their influence in college affairs was marginal, both launching personal crusades against Ushaw in an attempt to place limitations on his control over college funds. The catalyst for this was the Sherburn Heatley trial. Squire William Heatley of Brindle Lodge had bequeathed most of his estate to the Reverend Thomas Sherburn of Kirkham um, for charitable purposes. 
From this inheritance, Sherburn handed to President Charles Newsham the sum of £14,952, which was utilised in Newsham's ambitious building programme. However, Heatley's will, and consequently Sherburn's donation to Usher, became a source of dispute. A long and protracted court case followed, with the court eventually ruling against Sherburn. It was alleged that the money donated to Usher should have been employed in Lancashire, so the issue brought to the fore the question of Usher's control of trust funds. Thomas Sherburn was also involved in another case when he used £12,000 allegedly bequeathed to him by the former president of Usher, Thomas Ewans, in a court case. Ewans and his um, executors claimed the money had been a loan and demanded his repayment. When Sherburn died without any money, the ex executors claimed the money from Usher where so much of Sherburn's money had gone. The college authorities refused to acknowledge the claim, arguing that they were not Sherburn's heirs. In 1859, Bishop Goss petitioned over the matter of control of college funds to the Holy See, and a commission of inquiry was set up to investigate the administration of Usher funds generally. Thereafter, the bishops of Liverpool and the no other northern um, um, dioceses, dioc I can't even speak well. the other northern um, um, dioceses, um, effectively gained control of the sem seminary's finances, and had sub subsequently lost much of the independent spirit inherited from the English College in Douay. Throughout this period, Nicholas Wiseman was a constant defender and support of the college's autonomy to manage its own affairs. In 1850, when the dispute was just beginning, Wiseman informed Monsignor Newsham by letter that if there were to be an appeal to Rome, he, Wiseman, should strain every fibre of his being to have the college put under the direct protection of the Pope. In other words, he held it that it should be made a pontifical um, college. Only in this way would it be safely out of the reach of the bishops who might injure it. Newsham arrived in Rome at the beginning of November 1850, fully expecting to have the assistance of Wiseman in th these discussions um, that he hoped to have with the authorities of propaganda. No sooner, however, had the president set foot in the Vatican than he heard of Wiseman's sudden departure for England and the announcement of the restoration of the Catholic hierarchy in England. In January 1851, Wiseman received another controversial appointment when he became the apostolic visitor for Usher College, ostensibly to limit the powers of the English bishops in the management of Usher. This gave him the power of protector of the college, but with little power to decree. It once again gave him the opportunity to show his support for this beloved institution. No distance of time or place could ever weaken an affection, still less dissolve a tie so, easy, so early formed. I watched with undiminished interest the growth of the stately buildings around the original and in my time on an unfinished pile of St Cuthbert's College. I have followed with the lively interest of a faithful son the varied improvements which have been engrafted on the old, solid and vigorous stock of its constitutions. The unbroken connection between that noble foundation and myself, kept alive by reciprocal offices of, uh, of friendship, has been greatly strengthened by the continuation there as its worthy president of the honoured Monsignor Nishan, with whom, more than with any other person, I had the pleasure of being connected as his pupil through my whole education. The term apostolic visitor created much confusion. Immediately, immediately when the announcement was made, several of the clergy began to investigate the extent of, of Wiseman's power over the college. Addressing the new Bishop of Hexham, William Hogarth, in reply to his inquiries, Wiseman himself wrote, 
The object of my announcement is to form a nucleus for deliberation as to, to the provisions necessary for regulating nominations and presentations to bursars and securing the college by some authoritative measure from the AHS, either the Holy See, against such a danger that has lately been threatened by it. It will be a troublesome duty while I have plenty of home to occupy me, but for Usher's sake I will do anything in my power. As Father David Milburn has noted in, in this history of Usher book, this is not just empty, empty words. There is no need to doubt the new Archbishop's sincerity in promising to help his old alma mater. His later actions will prove abundantly his, his devotedness towards and even his prejudice in favour of Usher. Other motives assuredly for the college, which had first set him on the path to glory, and for Charles Newsham, he maintained throughout his eventful life a constant personal regard, as we've already seen. In 1854, at the low week meeting of the hierarchy, Wiseman defended Charles Newsham in the latter's claim that the college was independent of the northern bishops, on the grounds that it was not a seminary in the Tridentine sense. The Cardinal Protector announced to the bewildered bishops, quote, You must not imagine that the President and superiors are your servants. The college is a corporate body and has rights of its own independently of you. The bishops, understandably in some cases, were furious. They drew up a petition in November, signed by Bishop Hogarth and themselves, which pointed out that, so far, no agreements had been reached on those subjects which had necessitated the appointment of Cardinal Wiseman as apostolic visitor of the college. And how did propaganda respond when they received this petition? By granting Wiseman an extension of his faculties as apostolic visitor for three more years. When the bishops met for the 1859 synod, however, matters did not go Wiseman's way. Archbishop Errington, who at, the, at this stage had something of a personal axe to ground, grind towards Wiseman, and Bishop uh, Grant of Southwark, who had a vested interest in St. Edmund's at the expense of Ashore, together put forward a suggestion that the management of the English seminaries should be entrusted to a board of bishops. The decree was carried and the majority upheld that as far as Ashore was concerned, it should submit to a board consisting of the bishops of Hexham, Beverley, Salford, Liverpool and Shrewsbury. All was not lost, though. Before these synodal decrees became law, they needed the acceptance of the Holy See. This, Wiseman argued, would not be given easily, and he made a personal appearance to Rome in order to convince the Holy See to reject the claims. Propaganda did initially shelve the claims, but on the 14th of September 1863, following Newsham's death and replacement by Monsignor Robert Tate, propaganda issued its approval of Decretum 15, composed by those bishops in the Third Provincial Synod at Westminster, who opposed Wiseman's plan for the seminaries. Simultaneously, the Cardinal's faculties as apostolic visitor of the college at Usher were withdrawn. This essentially marked the end of Wiseman's official involvement in the management of Usher. The deeper episcopal troubles with which he was occupied at the time so sapped his failing strength that he formally renounced his intention of supporting Usher in the event of its continuing struggle against multi-episcopal control. So to conclude, Usher College played a central role in the second spring of Catholicism in the mid-19th century in a number of ways. Firstly, it played a crucial role in training the priests ministering to the increasing popula Catholic population. Secondly, the vision of its president, Monsignor Charles Newsham, encapsulated the outward spirit of the second spring and the splendid neo-Gothic architecture of the buildings um, that are still with us today. Thirdly, and perhaps more importantly, 
Um, Rochelle College developed a strong link with that living embodiment of the Second Spring, Nicholas Wiseman, whose protection of the college, at least until his later years, was vital in securing its preeminent position during the mid-19th century. Thank you very much.